the Televerse podcast from Pop Optic TV. P-O-P-O-P-T-I-Q.com. Comedy, reality, drama, genre, and what's in between. Cover me anything that's interesting. Hello and welcome to the Televerse Pop Optics TV podcast. Uh, this is Kate Kalsik, TV editor of popoptic.com, and I'm joined this week by my first in a series of fabulous guest co-hosts. I'm so lucky. Uh, it's Emily L. Stevens from the AV Club. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. This is going to be a lot of fun today. I'm looking forward to it. It's always fun with you. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, as some of our listeners will have, hopefully all of our listeners will have noticed, there's a new theme song uh, where Sound on Sight has closed its doors and uh, we're now at Pop Optic, uh, which is super fun and uh, very exciting. So that's what I've been doing all weekend. Uh, what have you been up to, Emily? I have mostly been watching TV preparing for this podcast. I didn't realize until after I agreed to do it how much work you put in every week. You are really dedicated. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's dedicated, wasting my life, one of the two. But uh, I think we can yeah. all say that. Yeah, that's that's, that's how, how we roll, right, in the, yeah. the TV critic world? Yeah, absolutely. It's been, it's been a very busy week. For, with launching Pop Optic, you know what's fun is that yes, there. Thank you so much for you. You watched so much TV. I didn't actually anticipate uh, you being able to to watch as much as you did. So it's greatly. We're gonna have a great conversation about all this week's TV. Um, but this is a light week. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is a light week. So I was gonna say I we 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 lucked out because it's a light week considering everything was launching. But. Uh, what what's been what have you been noticing in the TV conversation this week? Uh, the big thing really is the Mr. Robot finale being postponed a week. I I am I I think that's an appropriate choice. I'm also personally disappointed because I've I've been plowing through Mr. Robot in order to have a conversation with you about it today, and now it's going to be postponed. I I think that's socially appropriate. I think that's the most sensitive thing to do, and also it's a bummer. Well, we can talk about Mr. Robot when we get to genre and drama. I would love to get your thoughts on the series. So I think we should do that because you've been okay. watching a bunch of it. That's, that works for me. Uh, yeah. And, and from what I've heard from people who have seen the episode, who have screeners for it, uh, they, it, it was a good call. It's a very, apparently a very similar or at least similar feeling scene. Um, so I applaud USA Network for postponing the episode, especially it's the same day. And apparently some in some corners of the Internet, there's been complaining about this. But I I mean, to those people, I just want to say it's the same day. A B. Remember when Buffy season three happened and we had to wait like three or four months to watch earshots because of Columbine? Like waiting a week is not a big deal, people. The older I get, the more patient I am with stuff like this, too. The more I realize that even if it weren't upsetting to me, I am not the only person who matters. Whoa. I know. What is that? <laughs> that being sensitive to other people's tragedy is never a mistake. Yeah. And the, the, again, so many of you, hopefully this, you know, if you're going to take away all of the uh, compassion and empathy of let's make sure we traumatize as few people as possible, hey, give people another week to catch up on the show. Yes. So, including me. Including you. Uh, yeah, that's been the main 
topic of conversation for for me. Also, we should probably mention the passing of of Wes Craven um, mm-hmm. uh, from brain cancer. I, I want to say he was uh, seventy six. Does that sound right? That does sound like it's in the ballpark. I just read his obituary before you you called me, and I can't remember his age. Uh, yeah, but uh, def- certainly a very influential figure in, uh, especially, you know, at Pop Optic, we're very genre based. And I know that there's a yes. lot of uh, love for, for his work and what he did to to shift the conversation and, and re- reformulate it in, in the, I want to say the 90s. I'm not a horror person. I want to say Scream was the 90s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So uh, I have not, have you been watching Scream? I, I haven't been watching the TV series. I have been reading Latoya Ferguson's reviews of it at the AV Club because they are so entertaining. Although even she has stopped reviewing it. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Sometimes just reading the review is better than watching the show. That is, yes, that is that is a truth fact. Um, yes, that's. I, I was going to start naming names, but uh, shows, but let's let's maybe not do that. Instead, <laughs> I'll just uh, say uh, I have not seen much of Wes Craven's work, but what I have seen, I've really appreciated. And uh, certainly this is a person with a long legacy. So uh, I'm very influential and will certainly be missed. Um, but let's now awkwardly transition to talking about way too much TV. This week, uh, Emily has chosen for the DVD shelf. We're talking about Monty Python's Flying Circus. Uh, very excited for that, Emily. I am excited and I am also intimidated because it's, such an iconic subject and one that so many Monty Python freaks, including myself, have committed to memory. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I think no matter what I say, it's going to be contentious. So that was, that was liberating, in fact. Yeah, that's going to uh, be, that's coming at the end of the podcast. But first, uh, let's dive in with our week in comedy. This week in comedy, uh, we'll be talking a little bit about Drunk History, which is starting up this week on Comedy Central again for season three. Then I'll talk a bit about The Carmichael Show and Difficult People, the children's menu, and we'll both have fun with Playing House, Employee of the Month, Married, The Cruise, Key and Peele, Hollywood Sequel Doctor, Rick and Morty, The Ricks Must Be Crazy, and we'll wrap things up with Review, Catfish, Haunted House, and of course, Emily, you're, you're reviewing that week's week over at the AV Club, so we'll have a lot to say about Review. Um, uh- to say about review but first let's kick things off with drunk history and uh i've i I talked about this a little bit uh coming back from comic-con i went to the drunk history panel at comic-con and that's what it was just a lot of fun and uh paget brewster is delightful and of course paul tompkins everybody knows paul (laughs) tompkins is delightful uh so it was it was a really fun panel and it made me want to sit down as, as well as the clips that they were showing it made me really appreciate you know listening to the behind the scenes people talk about their process and uh, how challenging it is to match up the reenactors um, faces and, and lips with the, the often slurred, <laughs> often random, often tangential uh, dialogue that they're mimicking. Uh, it was really fascinating. It made, it made me take another look at the show and I'm, I'm glad I did. I had fun with these episodes, but I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Emily, would you explain for those who do not know what is drunk history? Drunk History has Derek Waters, the host, taking a, a usually a comedian, a performer of some kind, getting them good and drunk in a comfortable environment, and then having them tell a small story from history as best they can 
while they're stumbling over their own words and groping for ideas and names and places and dates. Uh, so it's a jumbled up version of the sort of sidelines of history that don't really get explored in most history classes or large overviews of history. And of course, I think it's important to note that uh, Derek Waters is also drunk. Oh, he's, yeah. he's getting drunk with them, which is an important element. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so had you seen, I'd only seen uh, like a little bit of season one. I watched it uh, just out of my affinity for Comedy Central and they've had a really strong uh, lineup for years now uh, when it first, uh, when it first launched. But for me, I wasn't seeing the craft of it. I wasn't, uh, I don't think I was being critical enough in my viewing of it. And so I just saw, I was, when they ever would cut to the reenactors, I'd be like, okay, but I don't care about this part. I want uh, the, the story and I don't, it's not funny for me to see drunk people that I don't know be drunk. I was completely wrong and completely missing the point, uh, but I hadn't watched it since season one. Have you been watching regularly? I have been watching it regularly, although it took me a few episodes to really enter into the spirit of it. It made me very uneasy at first. I don't really drink that much, and I, it, being around drunk people makes me nervous. Mm. Watching drunk people makes me nervous, too, it turns out. But once I understood that it was... It's a very generous show. Derek Waters is very generous with his guests. He's very gentle with them, even though he himself is drunk. Uh, and I love the way the show tells these smaller stories that we otherwise might not hear, and especially that it focuses very often on marginalized populations, or it might focus on people of color or on women in history, people whose histories are often elided from traditional larger narratives. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as a long-term listener at this point of uh, How Stuff Works, uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class, podcast i'm a fan like you say of of those uh underexposed stories historical stories uh now i saw the first two episodes of the season did you how many did you see the first two or just the first one i've seen the first two. First two um and there are some stories here i was familiar with uh, i don't know if we want to get into the specifics of what they are uh, i didn't realize for example that each episode centers on a different locale and that's part of the narrative structure and I didn't notice that I didn't notice that last season, and I'm wondering if that's an innovation for this season. I, I intended to go back and check the titles, but I never did. <laughs> well, I think you were a little busy cramming in all this ridiculous amount of TV. <laughs> I was a little busy. I had a lot of fun with with this with this episode with this these two episodes. I should say. I what I thought was interesting is this is season three. Obviously, they they have their approach down. They know what they're doing. Um, it feels very confident. And yet, even in season three, there are certain people who are better at this than others, which I find fascinating, who who are better storytellers. Pretty much everybody, I think, does a good job uh, as being a drunk historian. Uh, but even in the reenactors, everybody is doing a good job. There's nobody who's glaringly bad or anything. But there are certain people who you can tell have a particular affinity for this type of comedic uh, acting, I guess. And like certain people have more of a felicity with the expression. And it's really, for me, just again, being new to the show, it's really fascinating to watch who goes a little too big uh, in like in place of the camera a little bit more, who keeps it really low when they're, you know, you know, stumbling, you know, over a word. Uh, it, 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 as can so frequently happen when reenacting the drunk historians. Uh, do, were there particular people that you feel we can mention without spoiling? I think so. I think uh, 
I, I'm always surprised by who am, who disappears into a reenactor's role and who shows up as themselves, no matter how many costumes, layers of costume you put them in. Uh, for example, I was surprised. I had to go look up who played, and I think this is fair game, who played Clark Gable in the Miami episode. Oh, um, Josh Hartnett. It was Josh Hartnett, but I absolutely didn't recognize him because boy, has he got that Clark Gable smirk right down. He's so good at it. Especially but, with the mustache. Like, yeah. But even though he, even though he's, he's not particularly over costumes, you know, he's not wearing a wig. He's not wearing any sort of disguising hat or <laughs> he's not wearing a medieval ruff like Matt Besser is as King Ferdinand. But I absolutely didn't recognize him because all I could see was Clark Gable. I was really impressed by that. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, he was really fun, and I've enjoyed him so much uh, on on Penny Dreadful the last couple seasons. He's been the breakout for me of that, mostly because everybody already knew Eve Green was amazing, right? Uh, I'm a season behind on Penny Dreadful, uh, so I haven't seen I haven't seen all of season two yet. But he's, he was fantastic on the first season, and I loved it. Yeah, I also really enjoyed uh, Justin Long. I thought he was particularly strong. <laughs> I always enjoyed Justin Long. He was particularly strong. And Jenny Slate's storytelling was so delightful. And also, I didn't feel like she was very drunk. <laughs> she, she was, yeah, she was definitely one of the, the better historians. And uh, it is, it, it, it's just really interesting because I, I was very familiar with one of the stories. The, the one in which Chris Maloney appears. Uh, <laughs> I'm very familiar with that story from other history podcasts I listened to. But it was still delightful. Um I completely unaware of the the Maya Rudolph, shall we say, reenacting. Ew. I Chris shouldn't have been. Rudolph. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, it was fantastic. So I, I it's hard to talk about this without giving away some of the the more memorable uh appearances and uh and I guess stories because I think part of the fun is is discovering the stories. But uh there's there's a lot there's a lot to enjoy here. And I would say if you haven't checked out the show before but you enjoy history and uh the things we've been saying are intriguing check it out i mean comedy central knows what they're doing yeah it's it's a very surprising show if you go into it with preconceptions i thought it was going to be sloppy and trivial and it is it so surpasses any expectations i could have had for it it's it's just a delightful show i really enjoy it yeah Absolutely. Um, next up, I'm going to talk briefly here about the Carmichael show. Now, last week on the podcast, I had seen the pilot and talked about it and was, you know, basically nonplussed. I said that uh, I was really interested. You know, it was interesting that they were do t like a approaching some uh, political kind of topics that weren't being discussed elsewhere. But on the whole, it's just very familiar storytelling and a not interesting show. Then all of the critics said, oh, the Carmichael show is amazing. Uh, the first episode's only whatever, but make sure you watch the rest. Uh, it gets so much better. Uh, so I went back and watched, and they were right. I won't, don't know that I would say amazing, but uh, I still I still struggle with how, um, how dated it feels because it is that multicam family uh, comedy sitcom approach. You know, it's very... It's long scenes. It's very wait for the laugh so the presentation style is not um just for me it's hard to to get past that because it feels uh like 
uh, it, it just feels very dated. I don't really have another way to say that, but it is paired with some really interesting topics that just aren't being discussed elsewhere. So while the presentation format is not like I struggle with it. I struggle with the types of performances certain members of this cast are giving. Uh, the exceptions being, uh, of course, Laura Devine and Dave Allen Greer, who are such uh, veterans. Um, but I mean, when you have the second episode was all about uh, going to a Black Lives Matter protest on someone's birthday, and you know the generational uh, gap between the 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 parent figures and the main character. And those two generations and, and their approach to protesting and what it means and, and this different these different issues that aren't being discussed anywhere and certainly not on a comedy. And then the next episode looks at health and looks at like there's these so, uh, sociological underpinnings to it of what is that, you know, what is one's health stay, say about where they come from, say about their uh, their economic status and what they uh, can afford to, to live on and um, the way that... If you're, you can, it's really easy to, to be very healthy if you have a bunch of money and you can shop at Whole Foods. Um, if you uh, don't have a lot of cash and you can go through the drive-thru at McDonald's and get dinner for two fifty and be full all night, it's kind of hard to argue with that. Uh, so it, it, this show, again, it's, it's just such an interesting conflict there or just contrast between those two elements of being so fresh and so interesting on its topics but then presenting them in a way that feels like it's straight out of the 90s uh, or, or early aughts maybe even um so it's it's an interesting mix and certainly uh, i will keep watching it just because i support any show that's going to talk about this stuff in any way uh so i don't know if uh we'll see next week i'll there's I'll talk about the the next episode and then it'll be two more the week after that to finish out the six episode run. I don't know that anyone is watching. I don't know that the show's going to be picked up for a second season, but I'm glad somebody's talking about this stuff. And if nothing else, tip of the hat to, to the writers and the creator uh, to, for actually, you know, Gerard Carmichael for actually wanting to talk about this stuff. Yeah, the show hasn't really been on my radar until this conversation sprang up about the subjects it's tackling and the statements that it's making. And I'm for sure going to be catching up with it really soon. I, I want to hear someone talking about these things and I'm always grateful when a show does that and also makes it easy to dive in. Yeah. It's very accessible. It's very accessible. Yeah. And, and, and maybe that's the secret weapon of it. Maybe that's why they went with such a straightforward approach to like, if we're going to challenge on the topics, Let's make sure that we don't scare anyone off by being inaccessible narratively or, you know, visually or anything else. So I don't know. But yeah, you'll have to let me know what you think, Emily, when you get to I it. I absolutely will. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. Um, next up is Difficult People. I just wanted to mention the children's menu because I thought it was probably their strongest episode yet. I loved all of the discussion of the YouTube celebrities. I loved the the, the restaurant that they open up, um, the story for this episode, for those uh, who are not sure which one I'm talking about. This is when uh, Billy's boss goes on vacation and leaves the restaurant in his hands. And so uh, the, the, so our leads turn it into a, a restaurant for adults that serves overpriced kids' food. Um, theoretically for adults. So it's like grilled cheese and chicken nuggets and like hot dogs and that. Just not a fancy version of a grilled cheese, just like American cheese between white bread <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, and that there's, you know, the 
the main character, one of the main characters, Billy, is, is going to try for SNL, and there's one of the kids that the other lead, uh, the Klausner character, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, she used to babysit for now has like millions of YouTube followers. And there's, you know, Kathleen Jimmy is really fun in her cameo or, or her, her guest appearance, I should say, uh, as that character's mom. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it was a really fun episode, very confident. And, uh, I thought they, you know, it's been, it's been a delight watching difficult people. So way to go. Still enjoying it. Wanted to mention it this week, but let's move on to episodes that we've both seen and talk about playing house employee of the month. What did you think of? I won't be nurse. <laughs> I I just I love the show so much. It it's such a great portrait of female friendship and I think we really need that on TV. We don't see it often enough. Uh I also I especially loved how this storyline shows Emma getting a chance to take care of Maggie. Um it shows Maggie fulfilling something she's wanted to do, finding a path to take through life. It, it made me so happy. It made me so happy. It does all of that. And it also, while it's it's letting Emma take care of Maggie, it's also showing how these people are such good friends and the respect that they have for each other. Because that I won't be nurse conversation that they have at the end <laughs> is delightful and funny. But it also, it's there to show how significant that bond is that Maggie is constantly constantly aware of how much Emma sacrificed to come live with her and to help her raise raise, raise her daughter I mean to, to raise Charlotte that's something that doesn't get stated that's the premise of the show Emma has to move home so that there can be a show but to have every now and again it be underlined by the show and by Maggie that she will never forget this and she's always aware of it i think it's really important and it also just kind of helps with a little undercurrent of the show which has been delightful and i love this show uh but they don't spend any time working so <laughs> it's really visible that they don't spend any time working ever they're getting into hijinks constantly like they're making you know okay cupid boards and and things and it's you know like i obviously i i love that but it was really nice to to see uh, to see Maggie at work and Matt Walsh is so much fun. Um, it's also very fun to, to watch Keegan Michael Key and then at the end, uh, uh, Lindsay Sloan uh, freaking out about their divorce. Like I thought those scenes were hilarious and certainly um, uh, to to have the the various uh, stages of that. I mean, I I was very happy when Lindsay Sloan showed up at the very end. I was worried that that she might be written off to some extent. Um, but I see it's a small town, so uh, apparently she's going to still be around because I think she's delightful on this series. Oh, she's so great on the show. She's so great in general, and she's so great on the show. Yeah. Now, yeah. did you did you have any other uh, thoughts about this episode? I just we... I want to I want to talk about how these two women are partners. They're they're best friends. They live together. They're co-parenting. They're life partners essentially, and that's the theme of this episode: is that. No matter how much you've given to someone, sometimes sometimes it's that person's turn. They get more support. They need more support. And that's what happens in this episode. Because when you're together for life, there's no tit for tat. You're going to take turns, but they're going to be long turns sometimes. And I love that they're so giving and honest about that. That Maggie needs what she needs 
and Emma is there to give it to her because she knows that someday the tables will turn and her friend will be there to give her what she needs and that they can rely on each other. It's so satisfying to have a show where a really honestly healthy friendship is at the basis of it, even if they're silly and and sometimes a little manipulative with each other. They're good for each other. They definitely they bring out the best in each other, and it's it's they, wonderful they, to see. It because you don't see relationships this close on TV very frequently, um, and certainly uh, you don't see I should say you don't see platonic relationships this close on on television. You don't see many romantic relationships this close either. It's delightful, but usually when you do, it's a it's a it'll be sisters or or brothers um, or just siblings, and there tends to be this undercurrent of they keep screwing up. But what can you do? It's family, and so because they're biologically related, um, that <laughs> that takes care of everything else, and it's like a just a d- default reset button. Well, it doesn't matter what they've done because they're family, and this show doesn't have that. Uh, but but they feel cl- as close as siblings or anything else. It, like so, they can't fall back on. Well, what am I supposed to do? You're still my blank. I, I think too many shows use, well, you're my film, you know, family, um, as an excuse for bad behavior rather than hi- than understanding that it's so much more than that. It's not just sharing DNA. It's being a part of the person's life, and this is a sh- this is this is their family that they that they have made that this commitment they have made to each other, and this is not a show that ever goes back to well, what am I gonna do? You're my best friend. It's it, it shows them choosing to to help and support each other every single day, and uh, like you say, there's not enough of this on television. This is a show about chosen family and how in a chosen family and also in a biological family, if we allow ourselves to do it. Every connection is an ongoing act. None of it is passive. You choose who's your family and you continue to make them your family by giving. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree. Well, let's move on to our next show, which is Married, uh, The Cruise, because that's a perfect place to springboard off of. Uh, Sometimes you choose your family. In this case, uh, we... we, You're having a little yeah. trouble because you don't get to you, what you don't get to choose is 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 your parents. That's you know you don't get a choice on that. Uh, but you can choose to support or or distance yourself. And so, how did you like meeting some of uh, Nat Faxon's characters? Family? Uh, I felt like I didn't breathe throughout the entire episode. Um, I love Married. I think it is a really fascinating play on sitcom tropes about marriage. It's so understated and contained and quiet and it has a lot of the heartbeat of a drama but it's also really funny uh it's it's one of my favorite shows and i loved seeing joanna cassidy get introduced into this dynamic that's already really stressful and just turning a volume up to 11 on it uh russ's mother sharon is She's every trope of a sitcom mother-in-law, but played for real. If those imaginary sitcom characters actually walked into your house and behaved the way they do on sitcoms, it would be crushing. And it is. It's Mm -hmm. crushing. And it's hilarious. And it was very hard to watch. Um, Joanna Cassidy is so good at communicating that absolutely certain, very real, very human person who is impossible to live with i thought she was fantastic i thought it was a really fascinating episode 
I just kept wanting to like reach into the screen and not throttle her. Well, yes, throttle her, but not throttle her, but throttle Nat Faxon. It's like, do you, you hear what she's saying about your wife and you're not doing anything. And, but that's what this, that's the choice the show makes because that is more honest a lot of the times. Yeah. It doesn't give you the satisfying, you have to respect my wife or you you have to get out, which is a beat that, like, I feel like every sitcom has done at some point. If they've introduced an antagonistic relationship between the wife character and the mother-in-law character, um, eventually what happens is is the man steps in and solves it, you know, through some stern talking to. And by the end of the 20 minutes, we're all good. Um, and this doesn't do that. And it's frustrating. If it, In realsies, I don't know how... I would respond to that. <laughs> but it also feels, you know, it's like we just need to get through these two days. We're going to ignore all the terrible things she says. Uh, we're going to ignore her spending all our money because it's two days. And is and at the end of the day, we still care about her. I I very often want to reach through the screen and shake Russ, which is Nat Faxon's character. I almost every episode, I would say mm-hmm. I want to do that. Um, and... And yes, watching his mother speak so horribly about his wife was very hard to watch. And also, as you say, I think very realistic because sometimes it is easier to just back away from the drama than to confront it. Well, and also, I like that if you're, they're going to do that, they, they, like you said, they don't make it a laugh line. They don't make her the butt of the joke. They make it a thing that has happened. And all you need to do is look at some of these sitcoms that the show is addressing, these these tropes, and how they're used on other shows, and where the pause for laughter is. And that tells you who the show intends for you to laugh at. So frequently, there's there's many things that are great about Everybody Loves Raymond, but frequently, we're supposed to be laughing at... Not the mother-in-law character, but the mother character, the Deborah character, because she's so annoying. Or, you know, the when we're supposed to laugh tells us we should deride this character who's being insulted. Um, and this show doesn't do that. This, you know, this episode, it makes those moments really cringy and it makes them difficult to watch um, rather than trying to actually actively make them funny. It's, yeah, it's a show that is simultaneously quite precisely cruel and devastatingly compassionate to its characters uh, it's it's a fascinating balance and i i think they almost always hit that balance and i think they did really well with the cruise i would like to point out joanna cassidy in that teddy uh-huh. she is 70 years old are you kidding me i looked it up my husband, who is also a television critic, reviews Married for the AV Club, and he was, we were watching it and kind of spitballing about how old she could be, yeah. and we looked it up. She is 70. <sighs> yeah. Lady looks good. She looks good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Ah, oh, wow. Yeah, buy that, Teddy. Make that purchase. Um uh, yeah. Okay. That you, you throw me for a loop here. Let's move on <laughs> to our next episode, which is Key and Peele, uh, Hollywood uh, sequel Doctor. And uh, I have not seen Gremlins two. I, I have not seen Gremlins two. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the first Gremlins for the first time about a year ago. Yes, I've seen. I've I have seen Gremlins one uh, comparatively recently, like yourself. Um, I think it was actually for 
Sound on Sight, one of our 25 Days of Christmas, where we write up a different movie every day. One year I did them all myself, Emily. I did 20, I wrote, watched a different movie every day. It was, it was a crazy time. Oh I, my goodness. I was, I was more, I was younger, I was more foolish. Uh, but I have not seen Gremlins 2. I know it to have actually among critics a very high reputation. Uh, so it was fun to, to watch them talk about it here and make this delightful sketch about the Hollywood sequel Doctor, knowing that this seems like it should be terrible and maybe that's, I don't know if that's the joke that they're going for, but actually, apparently, it really works and is this sort of fascinating <laughs> deconstruction for the second uh, movie. This was the sketch of, of the group that really stood out to me. Um, and, and I understood, you know, it made sense to me that this would be the, the titular sketch. Uh, did, how did you feel about the sketch and, and did the other ones work for you? Absolutely. This is the standout sketch of this episode for me too. Uh, it just, it has so much going on. And again, it's, it's, it's quite compassionate towards its characters mm -hmm. uh, in a very silly, playful way, but still very compassionate. It also doesn't, uh, as Latoya Ferguson, who reviews the show for the AV Club, points out, it doesn't go to the easy joke about 1980s movie sequels and writing rooms. It doesn't make a cocaine joke. It doesn't have the writers just blowing their minds on coke and thinking everything is brilliant uh it's a it's great really colorful really poppy sequence and i love it yeah definitely uh any of the other uh sketches from this episode that you'd like to to mention give an honorable nod to oh boy i loved the sketch with the co-informants it is classic key and peel uh it just takes a simple premise that is not universal and escalates it to the most ludicrous heights that it can reach, where it has three suspects all being questioned, two of them two of them talking about whether the third one is turning on them. And and he keeps coming out, uh uh Jordan Peel keeps coming out of the interrogation room with better and better treats. He comes out saying, Pizza time uh, and it just it's such a great play on something we've all seen in the movies plenty of times and coming out with the little toy car at the end is just great cap i loved yeah. it i thought it was i thought it was a very silly sketch i really enjoyed it tremendously uh it does what some of the other sketches in tonight in that night's episode don't really do which is that classic pushing a simple premise to ridiculous heights yeah, they know how to escalate <laughs> over at Key and Peele. Yeah, and and after the you because know, I the way that they were escalating the food was really fun with uh and and like you said when he comes out with the pizza it was great. Uh, and so I wasn't really sure how they were and then capping it with this the car I thought like you said <laughs> basically I'm just co-signing what you said and I have nothing new to add. Uh, so I'm gonna move on. But yeah, it was really it was a really fun fun sketch and I you know I always enjoy and this is something we'll talk about. I should have mentioned this at the top. I'll go back and add it in. Uh, when we, we talk about uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus, uh, we'll talk a little bit about different sketch approaches. And so I, I always like when they bring in some of these different people to be like third chair uh, on their sketches. And it, they have a good, you know, they, they've they established enough goodwill that they can, it seems like they can get pretty much whoever on that they want. So I, I always enjoy seeing who pops up. And I thought that they, there was some fun guest casting here this week. I, but, uh, uh one of the disappointments for me about the episode, not seeing Jessica Nicole as mm -hmm. Claire, the girlfriend who's preparing to move, but that she didn't really get to do very much because she can be very funny and very affecting. And she felt to me just like a foil instead of like a fully realized character. And that was a little disappointing. Yeah. I mean, as a big fan of Fringe, uh, I was excited when when she showed up because uh, she needs to be on my TV more. 
and she's not uh but you're right she doesn't get to be funny she gets to be exasperated girlfriend um and yes that the the stuff that keegan uh, michael key is doing is fun but come on yeah i mean it's it's a great example of them taking a universally applicable situation you know we've all been in the situation where someone just tacitly expects you to help them move or help them paint or pick them up the airport and sometimes that's a really good index for how healthy and happy a relationship is how Mm -hmm. willing you are to take on that assumption that you'll help them Uh, and i did think that it had a good cap him having the wedding ring the engagement ring in his pocket the whole time is a nice little button on that sketch that he's willing to throw away a relationship he's so committed to just because he doesn't want to move her sofa Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah it didn't really land for me and i think that i think that Claire's character is why. Yeah. Yep. I it's just, I was just like dump his ass. Clearly, this when she when she uh, agrees to have him move in, uh, I was not understanding because yeah, who would marry that man? Oh my who? goodness, no one ever. No, no one. one should. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, speaking of, uh, who would ever marry? See, I, I'm trying for these transition points uh, <laughs> as best as I can. Who would ever marry Rick? Because uh, Rick and Morty. Uh, the Ricks must be crazy. It's been a really strong season as far as I'm concerned. We've we've given it a lot of praise here at the Televerse. Last week was a bit of a downtick, at least for me. Uh, how, what have you been feeling about this season of Rick and Morty, and what did you think of this episode? I Rick and Morty is one of my favorite shows on television right now. Uh, it's, it's probably in my top five shows that are being broadcast at the moment. Uh, so I'm not going to have a lot critical to say about it, particularly this week. Uh, last week, I thought, was a bit of a lull. But uh, this episode devastated me. And I wish I could say that was unusual. Most Rick and Morty devastates me. Um, What a terrible conundrum Morty keeps finding himself (laughs) in every time. Uh, Yeah, I I loved it. It made me cringe. It made me laugh. Um, I I enjoyed Colbert. I didn't feel like he stole the show. And I I was surprised and pleased by that, that he let the show be what it is instead of suddenly turning it into Stephen Colbert, guest star show. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, and uh, the, the, the Rick and Morty storyline was fun. At, at first, when they start just repeating themselves verbatim, uh, I was not on board. I was just like, okay, okay we're going to see this third. But then when the, uh, I guess the 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 scientist from the microverse mm-hmm. uh, realizes that that's when I was like, okay, so that's why I've been listening to the same three lines of dialogue for the past eight minutes is so that we can get the wait a second. Uh, and I thought that then I, I was starting to lull with, with like you said uh, about last week with this episode until that turn happened. Uh, and then I was fully on board with it, which I thought was, yeah, I thought it was delightful. Um, but I also really loved what we got with summer uh and like like when when goo hunter appears oh god oh god so amazing oh this show is never it never pulls its punches it's not afraid to get really ugly and just let you see that yeah i respect that yeah and we don't see we don't see the parents this week which i think is a good call uh just changing up the dynamic a little bit and not feeling like you have to use every character in every episode i think it was good to get a little time off from them uh yeah so when when they 
left summer by herself at first i was uh i was like are we gonna spend the whole thing with her and that could be a funny wacky adventure um but they they went a different way than i was anticipating uh which you know it it, it worked really well with what they gave summer to do so mm-hmm. well done rick and morty still loving still loving this season uh but let's let's move to our final show of the week uh for comedy and that's a review catfish haunted house uh you you have many thoughts on review this season how did you feel about this episode? I I felt like this episode, it was a great example of how beautifully the writers of Review have mastered their pace. Right up until this point, I have been feeling like the first season was a free fall. Just there's been so much happening. There have been there have been two house fires. There's been so much gunplay. Forrest keeps getting injured. Other people are going to jail it's been this waterfall of disaster. And at the end of last week's episode, I had my I had my hands dug into my hair and I was saying no and thinking they can't sustain this. And then they didn't try. It's so measured. Catfish Haunted House is it's a little weird to say of an episode where Forrest gets stabbed and falls down a flight of stairs that it's a pause but it is it's a much quieter moment in the universe of review that lets us take a second of quiet and really think about what's happened before and what's going to happen in the future and what might be happening off screen it's very effective it's it's chilling i loved it the way that they've been deploying uh, Jessica St. Clair this season has been very canny. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I really, I really enjoyed her here. And I, I mean, I'm sure some of that has to do with scheduling with playing house and the, the many things that this, the, it's an excellent cast and supporting and, you know, recurring cast on review. Uh, so it's not surprising that they have difficulty getting them all the time, but I think they've, they've used her really well. And uh, yeah, this, like you said, this is this one feels like a pause because we have, you know, Forrest breaking into someone's house and like like peering like standing in a room <laughs> and that kind of thing. And it, it it's sitting in his psychology more than uh and, and allowing it like when he's stretching the notion of what a haunted house can be, uh, to give himself an excuse to go back to his old house, um, that's not something he would have done earlier in the season. That's his personal life finally bleeding over and affecting his work life as opposed to vice versa, which is what the show has been for you know, most of its entire run, um, except for, I guess, maybe the season one finale. And so to to have them switch that up here, I thought was was it was a good change of pace. And uh, it it is a little heavy. I don't know how they can. Like, how do they have end of season that doesn't just destroy forest <laughs> i can't predict it i i i it's one of the things i love about the show is i never know what's going to happen but i know it's going to be bad <laughs> uh, yeah i i think the way they use Jessica jessica st Clair is i i agree that it's really smart it also it mirrors forest's experience of her that she is out of his reach she She's gone. She's moved. She's moved on and she's physically moved and he doesn't have access to her and he wants it so desperately, even though he doesn't really know that's what he wants. He keeps telling himself he's gotten over her. 
and she's clearly on his mind all of the time. It's, it's really heartbreaking. Uh, review is, it's just, it's perhaps our best contemporary example of irony and contrast. There's, there's the contrast of the loud and, and very often brutal things that dominate the screen uh, with Forrest getting stabbed and fires and burning down the house and shootings on the street. And then they contrast that with the tacit events that are occurring behind the scenes. Like, so Forrest burns down his father's primary home. He sets in motion the action that burns down his father's second and, as Forrest points out, final home. Uh, <laughs> But what the show doesn't explicitly address, but we all know, is that arson was just prosecuted for, uh, sorry, Forrest was just prosecuted for arson. And even though the charges are dropped, that plus him being documented, refusing to stand up and stop the kitchen fire he starts, means that there's a possibility that the homeowner's insurance won't cover the claim. Any astute viewer has to wonder if he's just bankrupted his father as well as destroyed his home and so many memories. Uh, and there's also the greater irony of the show, which is that Forrest routinely talks about the horrors he's manufacturing in his life as if they are freak events visited upon him and his loved ones and, and even on complete strangers from outside, from some outside force. He... He takes on this mantle of objectivity through the show and uses that as an excuse to perform acts that are idiosyncratic to him, like breaking into the haunted house, uh, breaking into the house and calling it a haunted house or talking about catfishing as something that the catfisher does to his ex-wife. He does that <laughs> more than once in the episode. He explicitly talks about catfishing as something someone does to his ex-wife. And then he's bewildered at the disasters that keep befalling them. Uh, he is, it's because Andy Daly is such a genius of affability, Forrest is tremendously sympathetic, but he's also a monster. And he is the worst kind of monster, the kind that thinks he's blameless. Yeah, he's, yeah. In season one, it's like you say, it is sort of like a descent where it's, gets more and more you, he's much more an everyman by the time we're in season two and we're we're watching him almost actively pathologically destroy everyone's lives around him uh yeah he is terrible he's he's terrible and he's pitiable i feel so sorry for him and also He's enacting tragedy. It really is a tragedy in the classic sense that there is some flaw inside of him that allows him to be driven by the show he thinks is a public service. Or he uses that to enable his behavior. Uh, I, I, I have trouble sympathizing with him or feeling bad for him at this point. I I mean, he, again, like you say, Andy Daly is remarkably affable and really no one else could make this work. Uh, but I've moved beyond the point of feeling bad for Forrest. Now I'm just sort of entertained and intrigued to see what's going to happen next and where, where the journey is going to take the character. I still want to follow the journey. Yep. Uh, but as far as, you know, for me at a certain point, I don't know when that point was. I don't know when the last straw <laughs> happened. <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I don't, he's going to lose 
uh, joint custody of his kid if he hasn't already off screen. Um, and, and he, he should. He, he should. should. Joint custody. He's dangerous and 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 shameless. And he's done all of this to himself, and uh, and he's had enough signals, you know, or people saying you have to stop this directly, as happened in season one, um, that he's willfully ignoring that and over and not allowing himself to hear what a problem he has. He's addicted to his show yes. and to what that means to having that show means. And, um, uh, it, it's, this is not present it like the compulsion to do this or, or the need for fame or ego, like to feed his ego, which goes so strongly in with his choices and the, you know, his commitment to his show, uh, keep me from pitying him anymore. Uh, though I certainly used to, but I, I, I am not, I understand where you're coming from and that's how, how you view the character, or I guess maybe you're just nicer than I am. I, I think I, well, I'm certainly more immersed in the show's universe than you are because I watch mm -hmm. it so intently and, and often yeah. repeatedly. Uh, I think the show that it, I think, I think review is most closely related to Breaking Bad, that it has this unassuming lead character who finds a source of power that is peculiar to him and exploits it for everything it's worth while believing that he is not the chief danger to the people he loves. That is brilliant. You are brilliant, Emily. I would never have made that association, but I should have because now I feel like an idiot for not having seen it earlier. It's, it's, it's terrible. And at some point, like with Walt, yeah, you do lose sympathy for him. But but it, I think that point is different for everybody, for every mm. viewer. Yeah. Certainly, it's it's doing pretty well uh, this season. Ever, I'm sure you're very excited for, for how the season's going to conclude here. Coming up pretty soon. I am terrified for how the season is going to conclude. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, uh, I think I know the answer, but what wins your week in comedy? Oh my goodness. I, I think it's got to be Review. Review is a masterpiece. It is the great comedy of our time and also the great tragedy. Uh, I can't argue with that. I'm giving it to Review too. Honorable nod to uh, Rick and Morty, but yeah, I'm giving it, giving it to Review. So now we'll take a break and come back with our week in genre and drama. week in genre and drama uh we're not going to talk about narcos because i haven't had a chance to watch any of it uh so that'll be next week instead i'm going to talk briefly about vixen 
Show Me a Hero, parts five and six, and uh, and then we'll both talk about uh, Mr. Robot a little bit, uh, g- generally getting ready for the finale. Uh, then we'll both talk about Fear the Walking Dead, so close yet so far, and mostly Emily, though I'm definitely going to talk quite a bit too. Uh, we'll talk about the Hannibal finale, The Wrath of the Lamb. I wanted to mention Vixen up here at the top because some people may not be aware of it. This is a webisode uh, or a web series, I should say, um, a series of five-minute webisodes that's going to be six episodes and, and culminate and basically be about a half hour when it's done. It's animated. It's up on the CW Seed, which is the uh, the web streaming uh, outlet for the CW. And it's about a superhero or superheroine called Vixen who is, uh, I believe she's African as opposed to African-American. She might be African. I'm not sure because I... She seems like she's American in the show, in, in the five minutes, but she, you know, it's only five minutes. And in the discussion about the character I was seeing before this launched, I was seeing her being described as being African. So I'm not sure if she's born in America or moved to America. I don't know. But what I do know is that this opens with a pretty badass fight scene that's a lot of fun uh, between her and Arrow, uh, Green Arrow, and The Flash. That really works. Um, and then it starts out, you know, interestingly. So I like what we see here, and I look forward to talking about it when we get to the end of the six weeks, uh, and, and all of it is out. So I'll, I'll talk about that as, as a unit, like all of it together, when we get to the end of that uh six episodes or six webisodes and there's like a half hour to talk about so i just wanted to mention it because i thought it was fun uh well animated and a nice addition to the arrow and flash verse over on the cw and people should probably check it out if that's you know if animated superhero things are of interest to you probably you should be checking out vixen um I wanted to also mention Show Me a Hero which wrapped up and uh did so very affectingly uh, i did not expect some of what goes down i'm gonna keep it vague vague because emily i know you haven't had a chance to see it yet but um i thought it was, the whole thing ended up being very powerful and really interesting very much a portrait of the people not just the story of of these uh townhouses being built this public housing being built uh, i thought the actors did a wonderful job uh you know at the end they have this the picture of the actor next to the picture of the person that they're playing it ends with a montage of here's what happened to this person later in their life and what they ended up doing that I thought, you know, it's, it's such a staple of based on true, uh, adaptations, but I was, it, it worked, it worked on me. <laughs> I'm, I can't lie. I'm just sitting there sniffing a little bit, uh, at, at some of the happy and other, uh, endings that we saw. Um, I did not see what happened coming cause I actively avoided looking into what happened, uh, in, you know, in the real life case of, of the, of these characters with, uh, you know, former mayor with Cisco and, and everyone. Um, but yeah, Oscar Isaacs is as good as everybody said. And, uh, I think ultimately I would agree with all the rave reviews that were getting, um, thrown around when, uh, people with better screener access than I do got to see it all before it premiered. Uh, so yeah, well done David Simon as if it could be anything other, um, very affecting story. I like the way it all dovetailed together in a, in a way that felt organic rather than tidy. Uh, more on that later. And uh, yeah, it was it was it was a really really solid six hours. Um, yeah, I, I hope to I look forward to the next David Simon project. I'm sure it'll be just as interesting. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, there's some of these casts that I, I'm going to be extra 
aware of and looking for in other projects, uh, particularly the actress who plays uh, Nay. Uh, let's this go. I thought she was very strong in these last two episodes. So looking forward to seeing her work elsewhere. Next up is Mr. Robot. So Emily, you marathon a bunch of Mr. Robot. I plowed through, I think I got to the fifth episode before I saw the announcement that the finale was delayed. And so we were going to postpone talking about it. You're going to talk about it another week. So I'm not entirely caught up, but boy, I am hooked. What a fun dark beautiful show it's really beautifully shot it's even if i weren't interested in the plot the visuals would keep me going yeah i absolutely agree Uh, how about that framing right oh gorgeous really cinematic really beautiful uh it feels a little dated almost but in the most delicious way and it feels uh, that that sort of you know like you say it feels a little dated in the the visual approach but in a way that because it's like a hacker story that feels very appropriate. Yeah. It feels, it feels like an intentional throwback to hacker stories when, Oh no, computers was sort of an overwhelming <laughs> motif in film. Yeah. It's... I think we can look back at history and say that Sandra Bullock's the net was an accurate <laughs> depiction of what would come. I mean, come on. Uh, do you have any, uh, are there any particular characters that have grabbed you or is it more the group as a whole? Like the I, show know, as a whole. I, really, I love I love what a strong ensemble piece it is. Um, I it, it's really mostly the visuals that have grabbed me. The storylines I I've had to back up backtrack and rewatch some segments to go in. Eh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I I loved the detox dream sequence. I think that that opinions were divided on that. I thought it was really beautiful and completely coherent in its incoherence. Um, such a great piece of filmmaking yeah that's definitely a standard episode uh of the season as far as i'm concerned and i'm glad that you're enjoying it so it makes you feel a little bit better about how much of this you watch <laughs> oh i had a great time doing it i just didn't realize what i was getting into you know you know that yeah. as a tv critic there is so much television and you just have to let stuff fall by the wayside and mr robot was one of the casualties of my schedule and i'm so glad to have had an excuse to plow into it. It's it's just been really rewarding and fun to watch. Well, speaking of, uh, last week, because of I had to let something slip for at least a week, this week it was Narcos. Just couldn't make the time, but I, I'll catch you it next week. Uh, th- last week it was Fear the Walking Dead. I only got about 15 minutes into the pilot before I ran out of time. Uh, before the last week's episode came out. So uh, I went, wanted to make sure, because Simon had given his thoughts last week, and there had been a lot of very strong negative reaction that didn't match for me what I had seen in the first 15 minutes of the pilot. So I wanted to make sure I watched the pilot and watched the second episode and gave my thoughts this week on the po- uh, the podcast. I'm curious what you thought uh, of it as well. But for me, um, no, it's not great. But the second episode, I think, is a lot stronger than the, the first. And... I also think uh, that this show is getting way too much hate because it's fine. Uh, it's fine, which is not the best thing you can say about a television show. Yeah, it's and, fine. And certainly there's a lot of much better television out there. But for fans, it, like, as we get, you know, into the, like, right now peak TV is such a buzzword in, in te- critical conversations. But as there's more and more really, really good TV and only in a handful of transcendently great TV, 
you, you try to watch all the transcendently great TV, and then you try you have to just pick amongst the good TV of what you are more interested in. Mm-hmm. So I don't blame I don't give, give anybody a hard time for saying I like this world, I like the aesthetic of The Walking Dead, and uh, so I'm gonna spend my you know when I'm making up dinner or folding my laundry, I'm gonna watch this good show or this solid show that I think could become good. Um, rather than another one. I don't really, I don't know. And maybe it's also, it certainly, I think, helped the pilot that I had seen such vitriol about it before I watched it. And I had heard such, you know, I heard people saying that this was, like, the worst kids on TV since Leo from Smash and, like, terrible performances from all involved and terrible writing and we just want to kill them, kill all the kids. And I think they're fine. They, they feel like kids to me. They feel absolutely like they don't there there's no Paige Jennings out there, of course, but they're not Leos either, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, they're they're fine. They're fine. It, and it does there's a certain amount of realism to the family units that we're seeing represented. So it really is sort of a family drama with zombies. Mm-hmm. And that's appropriate. Uh I for some reason I couldn't ever get into The Walking Dead, even though I love zombie movies. And I should be the target audience for the show. So I watched a few seasons. I watched maybe two seasons and then I just let it fall off my horizon. Uh, So I'm not really the target audience for Fear the Walking Dead, but I did plow through these two episodes last night to prepare for this podcast. And I mean, I have quibbles with it and then I have a larger problem. I, the characters are believable. I think the acting is, is fine to great. I think the acting is, is very good indeed. Um, it is frustrating to see these characters get a sense that everything is falling apart, but continually disregard precautions that could save their lives tomorrow. There's a scene where Travis sees a police officer hoarding water, and it's obviously supposed to be significant to him, but he doesn't think to do it himself. Uh, a minute, a few minutes later, Madison comes home and she washes out the bloodstains from her clothing, but she doesn't think to fill the bathtub with water, even though she knows the world is falling apart and filling a bathtub with water is a standard precaution. It's like the first thing you do. Yeah. They show Tobias abandoning his cart of canned goods that he so painstakingly collected. And maybe that's necessary, but we aren't actually privy to a good reason. Like, we, I, I didn't see the cart topple over, did it? I don't remember that. Is there, is there a reason he gave up the cart? Did he just not want to run it down those stairs? Uh, the Clark family doesn't tell Alicia what the danger is, even when she's trying to leave the house. And, I mean, maybe that's a hint at something in their backstory. But, in fact, the showrunner has said that's a hint at something in their backstory. But that needs to come across in the narrative, or it doesn't work. Yeah, I, I absolutely hear what you're saying. Uh, there's been some elements that I actually, I think they've been really nicely subtle about for example when you watch the pilot the only indication that you have that the kim dickens character is an addict are two lines of dialogue and the performance that dickens is giving um and you could blink and miss it but it feels very true to the character um i i and it doesn't become an issue we don't have her like staring at the drugs like with a longing glance because that's they're being more subtle than that and there's many ways in which they are not. Can we talk about the horrible writing of when when um, when the Travis is uh, turn listening to the radio and it's just like the most obvious dialogue ever. When Ugh. and then they go like, "Oh, it's sports." I mean, like, there's some really 
Yeah, I actually, I actually enjoyed that. That made me laugh. The the apocalypse is upon us. It's the end of the world. This player has been traded to that team. And I laughed out loud. And I appreciate that because it shows that the the writers know how important a sense of humor is to even the most devastating drama or horror. Well, I'm glad it worked for you. <laughs> I, like when, I like when they leaven the dialogue with something absolutely ridiculous. That, that landed okay for me. I had a really big problem with the first two episodes. Uh, they have three identified named characters who turn zombie and, and die. At least presumably all three of them die. Now, this, this is a spoiler for the second episode. Is that okay? Yeah, we're, we're talking second episode right, right. now. So Artie, the principal, who's played by Scott Lawrence, who you'd recognize him. He's got this great face. He's it just he looks like a nice guy. He's one of those actors who's been on everything once and on 76 episodes of Jag. <laughs> uh, there's Calvin, who is Nick's friend and drug dealer. He's played by Keith Powers. And there's Alicia's boyfriend, Matt, who I was very excited to see. It's Maestro Harold. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Mm -hmm. He's probably best known as Randy Wagstaff from The Wire. He was also on Suburgatory as Malik. Um, all three of these named black characters turn into zombies. And that's a big problem. That's, it doesn't feel like a statement about the disposability of black lives in a racist society. It feels completely unreflective. And especially in light of an interview I read with showrunner Dave Erickson, where he says, and this is a quote from The Hollywood Reporter. He says that it is how it would reflect on the characters themselves and how things would play out over the course of the season. That now, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. he. Well, he's talking about whether once they realized these characters were all going to die early in the series, he thought about recasting them, and he did not. Mm -hmm. But he, he also says there will be parody in the deaths over the course of the season. But <sighs> to present these three zombies, three black men, or one adult and two young men who are playing essentially children. I think they're both playing teenagers uh, as zombies who then die uh, to present that in isolation during the first two episodes and then be surprised that the audience doesn't like this concentration of black male deaths is disingenuous at best. Well, especially when placed against their treatment of the, the, the police in the the first and second episode where there's all these reports of the cops just shot a homeless, you know, a bunch of homeless people just, you know, shot them 20 times. And the, the way that it's presented, it feels a little, um, react reactionary to the, you know, the, the, this outrage across the country in various places about, uh, justifiable or not justifiable, uh, police shootings and uh, like a statement of well see because the cops knew better than than you do because they're all zombies Ugh. um and and i don't i don't know that they intend for that tone to come. I, can, I can only hope that they don't intend for that tone to come through because that cannot help the show especially if you're going to kill off your only three named black characters in your first two episodes um but it, if nothing else it feels very out of touch and granted when they were making this it was not right now but it was this has been a conversation this has been a national conversation for long enough i mean ferguson was last year uh that this feels very uh out of touch i like what we're getting in as far as depiction of of latinos uh because that was a 
issue in The Walking Dead season one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what did I mean? I really like the actor who plays Tobias, but maybe make the drug dealer white and maybe make Tobias black and then you at least help yourself a little mm-hmm. bit. I think there's going to be some nice diversity of cast just based on who we've seen so far. But th- this was a terrible misstep, in my view. And uh, and and it's it's a shame. It doesn't feel reflective. It doesn't feel like a conscious choice. It feels like an unconscious enacting of horror movie tropes where, hey, the black guy dies. And that's very disappointing. Yeah. Don't I don't I don't disagree. There are smaller disappointments in the show, and some uh-huh. of them are more entertaining than tragic. Um, there's a scene where Madison agrees. I think her daughter pressures her into going to talk to the neighbor across the street who's throwing the birthday party with the bouncy castle. And she sees her husband off in his truck and then walks across the street. And then it's a cut, either a cut to a new scene or a cut to commercial. And we don't get to see the conversation she has with the neighbor who's hosting the party. And I really wonder what that conversation was going to be. Like, (laughs) what have you done or seen that you can tell her about safely? Are you going to say, so it looks like a heck of a party. Now, listen, uh, my son says he saw a girl eating faces in a shooting gallery. (laughs) Or so heck of a party. So listen, we killed a guy out at the river and we think he might have been a zombie. Or so my daughter's boyfriend, and this is the one she can most confide in a neighbor about. My daughter's boyfriend has a really bad bite and he needs medical attention immediately. So we left him alone in his house and we think something's wrong with him. Like, how does that conversation play out? Well, and that's why I don't like, I, yes, that could be a fun conversation to see. Uh, but they don't have an answer for that, which is why we didn't see it. And that's why I don't have a problem with them not telling Alicia what's going on or or when the Cliff Curtis character is calling uh, calling his ex-wife uh, uh, to and she's she doesn't know what's going on I don't have a problem with him trying not trying to explain it over the phone because who would believe them they didn't believe other people uh, so I actually don't have too much of an issue with that it would have been a funny scene if they had managed to pull it off definitely but um but yeah I like that that only two episodes in it's only a six episode season, but two episodes in, they know the dead come back to life. And you, or if you get bit, this happens to you. And to shoot that, if you shoot them in the head or, you know, s- destroyed their, their head, that takes care of it. So I like that they find this information out or, or realize this information this quickly. Oh, yeah, they have to dive in if it's going to be that short a season. They've, they've got to plunge right in. And my problem really isn't with not seeing the conversation. It is the sense that the show itself, as you say, it doesn't know what the answer is to that question, mm-hmm. how that conversation goes. And I feel that way a lot about these two episodes, that there are situations where the show doesn't really know what's going on. And so it doesn't show us. Yeah, I don't I don't disagree. Um, yeah, it is one of those things where it's weird. I feel weird defending Fear the Walking Dead as, come on, guys, it's only okay or solid. It's it's not terrible. That's such faint praise. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's solid. It it could be enjoyable. I found I found the problems with it to outweigh the solidity of the acting. And and I like Kim Dickens. I she was a big draw for me. Uh, seeing Maestro Harrell go, if in fact he's gone. That that could be it for me. That could be the end of the show for me. Fair enough. Yeah, it, I, they like to cast the wire alums on this show, and then they like to kill them, yeah. uh, which is too bad. But um, 
Yeah, I, I will probably watch the rest of this. I don't know that I'll watch it week to week. Um, oh gosh, The Walking Dead's going to be back soon, and with it comes The Walking Dead podcast uh, and so much <laughs> more work. But uh, yeah, I I look forward to seeing if they can turn in the course of the six episodes if they can turn the show into as successful as it could be um, narratively. That is, it's already it has millions and millions of viewers, so I'm not worried about that. But if it, if they can turn it into a narrative success and they put themselves in the good position for a solid season two, which has already been picked up for 10 episodes, then that would be encouraging. So fingers crossed on that. But we, we need to talk about Hannibal a little bit here because then that's our last episode of the week, uh, the Hannibal finale, The Wrath of the Lamb. And I've got a lengthy review up at Pop Optic about this. It's like over 2,000 words. And I haven't even started writing with the music yet. Um, and I recorded a over three and a half hour podcast about it. <laughs> that will be out in a couple days, probably. It's going to take a while to edit that beast um, about this. So I'm going to mostly stay out of it. Uh can't promise I'll stay out of it entirely, but I would love to get your thoughts on this finale, uh, Emily, because I didn't like a lot of it, and I feel like I'm the only critic out there who, I mean, I know Noel over at TV.com uh, was mixed about it. I know uh, Libby Hill at New York Times was mixed, but everybody else seems to love it, so I, I'm fascinated with how you feel about this finale. I do not know how I feel about this finale. I am still, I have watched it three times so far, not counting the bits and pieces that I've watched and rewatched. And I have not yet settled how, let me rephrase that. I have not yet settled how I think about this finale. Mm -hmm. uh, how I feel is devastated. And I loved reading your review. Uh, we disagree about a lot, but I think you made some great points in it. Um, I I wasn't as disappointed as you were. Uh, I The finale left me with the feeling that it is, that I had eaten something too rich. Uh, it It's very emotionally rich. It feels a little narratively unformed. And I think that's Fuller's intent. It's intensely operatic it's beautifully filmed and a lot of the actual plot gets alighted which he's been doing that all season long there's been a lot of backstory for the red dragon and explanations of how communication occurs and how people escape and all that stuff has been cut out very often because he's not that interested in the specifics it turns out of plot. He's interested in the plot as a mechanism that houses this opera that's playing out in front of us. The whole show began this season to feel bigger than plot. It is operatic. It's, it's really a fairy tale. And I know I'm not the first critic to have pointed that out. Uh, Hannibal has always been this giddy dream of visuals, but the through line of season one and two is still essentially a thriller with elements of the procedural. And then... Hannibal's true nature is revealed to his colleagues and friends, and the show's true nature gets revealed to the viewers, that instead of being this dreamy procedural thriller, it's a nightmare. It's an expressionist fantasy of violence. Uh, so what you see as the show's history, as, as, as the show overturning its own history, I see it as the show coming into its own maybe not in an entirely satisfying way. Um, there, there are some elements of this season that didn't really pay off 
the the whole diversion to Lithuania, Chio's arc, the imprisoned man. I, I thought we were going to get some payoff for that in the final episode, and we really didn't. So very much like the staples from from the Chilton's magazine that he threw into Lecter's cell, there are these tools and elements that never get used. And that's a little deflating. But, but instead it uses something that has been going on since the very first episode. Uh, instead of overturning the show's history, it fulfills something that's always been inside of Will. It's sort of, it's Will's becoming. The series has for a long time flirted with the notion that Will has the capacity to become something dreadful, that he is perched on the edge. And this episode makes that very literal <laughs> and tips him over into the thing he both dreads and craves to be. There's, there's a running thread of imagery throughout this episode of... Uh, there's Will and Hannibal meeting in a memory palace cathedral. And there's even a shot where Hannibal is waiting at what would be the altar and Will is walking down the aisle toward him. So they really are becoming murder husbands. And then their departure to that house on a cliff is their murder honeymoon. And them tag teaming Francis Dollarhide is their murder consummation with all that penetration and spurting bodily fluid and panting and gasping and thrusting it it felt it felt it was the most voyeuristic that i felt through the entire series just watching that scene felt dirty and private and 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 to me it felt very intimate i know that it didn't feel intimate to you you say as much in your review that you felt like the show was distancing instead of intimate yeah when that happens, when we get that fight scene at the top of the cliff, because um, the, the issue I have, um, and I'm curious what you think about this, is that I don't think that seed has always been in Will. And I don't think that Will has always been just the right push away from becoming a monster. I think that that's what Hannibal wants to believe, and that's what he's worked very hard to make come true, but even when his brain was on fire and when he had had Hannibal tinkering around in there, he didn't become a killer and he didn't uh, go off with Hannibal. And when he flirted with that in the start of the season, he ultimately realized that that wasn't who he was and what he wanted. And so when the show wants me to backpedal on that in this last episode and be like, oh no, it was really there the whole time. And, that six or seven episode journey all through the first half of the season that showed why Will wasn't Hannibal and, and turns out he didn't have this part of him inside himself. That was all wrong, too, uh, because we're more invested in this I romantic idea of of Will's becoming um, because I don't I don't believe that or buy that uh, when we get to the bluff, I am because I, I didn't I couldn't initially when I was first watching it. As as we watch that scene, for you, you said it was so intimate and uh, you felt voyeuristic watching it. I was cracking jokes about murder husbands and the 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 husbands that slay together stay together. And I and it took me aback after as I was watching this. I was like, wait a second, because I was I was talking uh, with someone. Uh, messaging with one of our friends uh, over at Eat the Rudecast about it, who'd already seen it. 
when I saw it, um, who was like, I'm going to go radio silent because it's so intense. And for me, I was like, wait, why am I not having this reaction? Why am I not having the breathless Mizumono, I can't tear my eyes off the screen thing? Why am I so distanced from this? And it was because I didn't believe it. I didn't believe the character journey that they presented here. And I certainly didn't believe it as inevitable the way that the show wanted us to. Um, I'm curious, what do you what do you think about, about that? Uh, and also, what do you think about the notion for you are Hannibal and Will each other's true love? Oh, Cause, boy. Because <laughs> for me, they're not. And I know for a lot of viewers, especially the ones I've talked to who lo- really like this finale, they are. And so I'm wondering if that core disconnect between how I view the series and how other people view the series is the root of my problems with this finale. I, hmm. I don't know that I believe in the idea of a single true love. In fact, I know that I do not believe in the idea of a single true love. So no, I don't mm-hmm. think that I don't think that Hannibal is Will's single true love or that Will is Hannibal's necessarily. I think that they have a great and peculiar understanding of aspects of themselves that they aren't they don't feel safe sharing with other people. And that kind of connection is hard to deny and hard to disconnect from. And I'm going to cough again. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I'm not used to talking this much. <laughs> Here I go. Uh, so I, I, I also don't think that, that, that the characterization of Will as inevitably becoming a monster is true. I don't see it as inevitable at all. I see it as something that he wants and fights against for the entire length of the series. And we can certainly disagree about that. I see it from the very first episode. There are interludes of great brightness and vividness where Will is imagining himself as a killer. And there's a scene, I can't remember which episode it is, but the the episode of the Hobbs's house where Mrs. Hobbs comes running out and Will tries to stanch the wound on her throat and he's suddenly up to his elbows in blood and everything is so bright and hyper real. And I, I think Will is most alive when he is hands deep in, in blood and that he has successfully resisted giving into that life for the entire series. And that having seen how beautiful to him it can be and how ugly to the rest of us, or at least to you and to me, clearly, uh, he can't he can't live with that satisfaction. That he has a moment of great satisfaction and beauty that the rest of us would think is ugly and dreadful. And. Uh, it, Bedelia says you can't live with him, can't live without him. And in my view, that's exactly what happens is he realizes he can't live. He can't live with him. He can't live apart from him. And so they go over the edge together morally, and then they go over the edge together literally. So it's a love story and it's a tragedy. It's the tragedy of Will Graham, who finally becomes the person he could be and kills himself and someone he loves rather than go on with murdering. Okay. Well, <laughs> either we'll stop there or we'll talk for the two hours because I agree with some of that and wholeheartedly disagree with others. And that's part of why we have a three and a half hour animal podcast this week. Uh, but to be continued at a later point, 
because we've we've already run long, Emily. Okay. Uh, fast. I we can. I'm sure we can. You know, one of these times we'll be at a, a convention at the same time, and we'll we'll grab a, a beer or or a wine and and talk about this. Yeah, I have yeah. literally hundreds of words more of notes. Can I just? I want to yeah. point out something really interesting about those cliffs. I I wish I could take credit for noticing this, but in fact, someone tweeted, uh, someone tweeted a photograph, a screen cap of. Bedelia's office with Will and Bedelia and center screen is a painting that is the establishing shot of those cliffs. Oh, that's awesome. It's incredible. The bluff is eroding. <laughs> I think that's, that is the essence of this episode is that the bluff is eroding. Will has been bluffing himself and everybody around him that he is a safe person, that he is a person who is invested in keeping others safe. And he is but he can't keep that up. The appeal that Hannibal represents of the dark and the blood and the lust to kill is so persuasive that he has to give into it. He does give into it. He doesn't have to give into it. He chooses to give into it. And then he chooses to try to destroy them both. The bluff is eroding. <laughs> and I could just think the show is really trying to make us believe that and I don't <laughs> so yeah I think I think that's just either yeah. either you swallow it or you don't and I I don't even I don't even disagree with a lot of the points you make I just have a different experience yeah that's part of and, and like I say in my review my uh my frustrations with this finale do not damper uh dampen my love for the series at all this is one of those uh finales where i, I finished watching it uh, i wasn't sure what i thought about it and then i watched it again and uh then i i took a bunch of notes and wrote up my review and talked with other people and in the process of talking with other people about it and like kind of teasing things out i got more and more frustrated um so yeah this is I, I finished the finale and said, well, I don't know what I think about that. I know that I still love the, sh the series. This is not one of those situations where uh, liking or disliking the finale would affect my take on anything else. Um, but as I came down more and more negatively on it and just seeing the show and seeing Will specifically very differently than the show wanted me to see him um, in the last episode, the last couple episodes, uh, I just, yeah, the finale didn't work for me, but I still love the show and I still think it's a fascinating show. And I love that it's a kind of show where we can all have seen it and all know what we're talking about and all have very, a very, have watched it very closely and take such different things out of it. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think what you see as a contradiction of the, the character's nature, I see as kind of central to the show itself, that it's all about the tension between culpability and denial and also the desire to be seen for what you are and that the finale really shows us these characters and not just will as they are it shows will and jack and alana abandoning a lot of their pretenses and embracing the combination of pragmatism and arrogance that has colored their thinking for so long and i found it painful to watch and not particularly pleasant but the the horror of it worked for me. I can see why it wouldn't for someone else. Fair enough. Well, uh, thank you.
for this lovely conversation about our weekend in genre drama and the rest of TV. Uh, I, I feel like I can confidently say uh, our weekend genre drama for you goes to the Hannibal finale. Yes? Question. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'm going to give it to uh, I'm going to give it to Show Me a Hero. And uh, I, I kind of want to give it to Hannibal just because it's so pretty, even though I hate so much of what they did. Uh, the way that they did it is so beautifully executed that it kind of makes me want to pick that, but I just can't in good content. So I'll give it to Show Me a Hero, which is also wonderful. Um, and now we'll take a break and come back with our DVD shelf looking at Monty Python's Flying Circus. So we'll be right back after this. <laughs> I'm terribly sorry. I thought you were someone else. Oh, I see, yes. Um, I'm sorry, sir. Can I help you? Uh, yes, yes. As a matter of fact, you can, actually. I, I was interested in the possibility of... Per can I ask you who you thought I was? What? Who did you think I was just then when you thought I was somebody? Oh, it's no one you'd know, sir. Well, I might know them. Well, it's possible, obviously, but I think it's really unlikely. Well, I know quite a lot... I mean, he's hardly likely to move in your circle, sir. Why, is he very rich? Oh, no, I didn't mean that, sir. Is he a lord or something? Oh, no, not at all. Well, look, this is very easy to settle. What is his name? What? What is his name? Well, um... Yes? Michael Ellis. Who? <laughs> Michael Ellis. I see. Do you know him, sir? Uh, Michael Ellis. Um, Michael... You don't? Uh, well, I don't remember the name. I the think you I mean... would remember him, sir. Why do you say that? Well, would you remember a man six foot nine inches high... Forty-ish, and uh, he's got a scar from here to here, and absolutely no nose. Oh, I think I do remember somebody like that. Oh, uh, well, that's, that's not Michael Ellis. Right. He's a small man about this high with a high-pitched voice. Right, I'm not going to buy an ant from you now. Oh, no, please. I oh, know you've not been properly trained. I demand another assistant. Oh, no, come on, No, please. I want another assistant. All right, I'll get another assistant. Thank you. Hello, sir. Can I help you, sir? No, I want a different assistant. I am, sir, Mr. Abanaza, sir. Don't be silly. Oh, no, please, please, please let me help you. No, I want another assistant. Oh, no, come on, please. If you don't give me another assistant... No, no, I'll... no, no, I'll be very good, sir, really. Uh, good morning, sir. How are you, sir? Bit parky outside. It's a very nice suit you've got there, sir. You had a very close... Right, I'm morning, going. Sir. No, 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 please, I'll get you another assistant. All right. <laughs> Uh, at the DVD shelf, we're talking with, we're continuing with fabulous guest co-host Emily L. Stevens of the AV Club, uh, and and we'll be talking, uh, filling in the gap for me because I, I have a lot of affinity for this group, but somehow had never seen their TV show, uh, or outside of like clips and sketches, and I had never seen the whole show or, or seen like a completed episode. Uh, so I'm very glad to be finally watching Samani Python's Flying Circus. Uh, what made you want to talk about it, Emily? Boy, uh, it is 
it is such an iconic comedy show, and it's one that inspires ferocious devotion, and certainly for me, uh, one of the most attractive aspects of Monty Python's Flying Circus to me when I discovered it. I was a child when I discovered it. I was about six years old. So it was a really formative influence in more than one way. Uh, one of the most attractive aspects of it then and still today is how it presumes a baseline of knowledge that I didn't possess because a six-year-old can't possibly, but really, really wanted to. The first episode alone, it name checks Mozart, it compares the notable deaths of Genghis Khan and Richard III and Marat, it proposes a bicycle race between Picasso, Kandinsky, and Brock, and it never pretends that it's anything approaching a sober intellectual exercise. It's, uh, it, it presumes a certain baseline of knowledge, but it also doesn't require it you can still find the show accessible and enjoyable and silly and preposterous without knowing the things that they're name checking. And that was very satisfying as a child. Uh, as I grew to understand the references they were making, it was much more satisfying and deeper. Uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus is certainly the first place I heard the song Jerusalem, which is William Blake's And Did Those Feet in Ancient Time. Uh, it's the first place I heard Van Gogh pronounced as Van Gogh. It's the first place I heard of Trotsky. It introduced me to the world in a very peculiar way. And I think that's part of its charm for a lot of viewers. Not necessarily that they came to it young, but that it, it engages with so much of what's out there in the world in the silliest possible way. And I think that, like you say, that combination of making a show that, and, and this goes with all of their films as well. This is the sensibility of Monty, Monty Python, making a show that is very fluent in, in these cultural references that, and that also loves a fart joke. Yeah. Is, you know, it, it's, it's delightful. And, and it makes, it, it intrigues kids to catch all these other references and, and opens their cultural understanding to these other things, even if they don't know, what, if you don't, if you never heard Mozart, if you don't know who Trotsky is, if you don't know who these other figures are, it adds a, a conversational fluidity to it for the for the person watching who doesn't know that. That it makes you curious of, oh, I probably should know who that is. Uh, so even if you're not going to do go off and do homework about it, you're you're gonna the next time the name gets mentioned, that's gonna ping in your brain and you're going to notice it and you're going to tune into it more. Um, and at the same time, it's those people uh, like ourselves, I would venture to say, who enjoy the very uh, philosophical and analytical. It, uh, it's a little reminder that, hey, farts are funny too. <laughs> and silly voices yeah. are funny too. It's high comedy. It's low comedy. It's everything in between. And it it doesn't get obsessed with making everything make sense. And that in itself lends a sort of coherence to the whole. It's really impressive when it comes off and it almost always does. Well, and one of the things that was really interesting for me uh, watching the, the, these episodes that you recommended and, and some you know individual sketches as well, is that I was thinking about, I was thinking about it, I was actively thinking about it in terms of these other sketch shows or uh, focused on a particular comedian's voice kind of shows that we've been getting recently, either through Comedy Central or a show like Louie. And thinking about Monty Python's Flying Circus, not in the context of here are these comedy greats, these comedy legends that influenced so many like generations of, of people coming up after them. But as imagine you're watching this and this is like the key and peel 
of the years it was on. It's just it's it's just there. To, it's not there to be great, you know, cultural touchpoint comedy. It's there to be a funny show. And I I would say that they are probably aspiring to that as well to 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 more than just to be a solid show. But I was trying to think of it, approach it as a series that was still on the air as compared to one that had this like history and this legacy associated with it. And that was that really made it a, a, a much more um, relatable, I guess, a project and a property as compared to being some some idea on a pedestal. And so because I was started trying to think about it in that way, when there's a sketch that doesn't work or where I'm watching something going, yeah, I, I get what they're doing. I appreciate it, but I'm not laughing. Uh, I, I felt like I've, I felt the freedom to do that. I one of the things that surprised me a few years ago, uh, we bought the DVD, my husband and I bought the DVD case, DVD set of Monty Python, and we watched it in chronological order. And I realized I've never done this before. And you can really see a shift in tone in the fourth series, the fourth, what we would call the season, when John Cleese left. And it gets even yellier and a little more heartless, uh, a little crueler, you know, sour. It gets really sour. And that surprised me a lot because I, I think of John Cleese as being a very angry persona. I don't know what he's like in person, but the persona that he portrays on Monty Python particularly is very often someone furious. And I wouldn't have pegged him as being the voice of clemency but that sure seems to be how it works out. Or maybe it's just that the tone was shifting because they've been doing it so long and eventually tone does shift. I would also point to, yes, he plays a lot of angry characters, but he does a lot of bluster. Uh, great at it. He's very good at it, yes. But as compared to Org's Aspiration, thinking of something like the Cheese Sketch, Cheese Shop Sketch, or the Dead Parrot Sketch, of course, uh, for a little insider baseball here, when AV Club did a roundup of what are the five funniest minutes of anything <laughs> ever, I very strongly, I went with something else, but I very strongly considered the dead parrot sketch because I do think it is one of, yes, everybody knows it. it's been seen a million times. There have been, you know, plenty of riffs on it at this point. It's dead, Jim. But I do think that's one of the funniest five minutes of anything ever. Uh, but, but but there tends not to, even when he's getting exasperated and, and, and angry, it tends not to, it doesn't have a cold edge to it. There's always um, a, a warmth underneath it that like he starts out very congenial and then is pushed beyond that um, as opposed to ha being a more a colder anger. Um, and, and I think that I, I, I don't, unfortunately I wasn't able to watch enough to, of the various seasons and certainly not in order to be able to point to that trend uh, that you, of course, uh, had, had mentioned. Uh, so I would need to watch more to support that. But that's I, I, that would be my theory. I think I think that's a reasonable assessment that he has he has heat to his anger. And one of the things one of the things that allows you to have heat in your anger is warmth in general. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair thing to say. Um, I so I did send you. Uh, several recommendations of individual sketches just because I didn't know how much background you had in the show. So you could get a sense of the feel of the show in general. But we're going to talk about three episodes particularly here. We're going to talk about Face the Press or Dinsdale, which is episode 14. We're, uh, we're going to talk about Deja Vu, which is also called Show 5. 
although it's actually show 16. And we're going to talk about Michael Ellis, uh, which is episode 41. Um, I, I chose these particularly because they work really well as complete episodes rather than discrete sketches. And also because they illustrate something really great and specific about Monty Python's Flying Circus. Um, Monty Python is always skewering bureaucracy and the expectations of organized systems. And Face the Press is a tour de force of explicitly pushing the absurd expectations of organized systems to their greatest possible extremes. It starts with a show within a show called Face the Press uh, and the line... Tonight on Face the Press, we're going to examine two different views of contemporary things. And that's exactly what the whole episode does, as consistently and coherently as any episode ever. And it cuts across every social class, which is not always the case. It starts by evaluating cabinet ministers, not only by their terrible track records. They've, they've got one who's promised to build 80,000 million billion houses a year in the greater London area alone, but in fact has only built three in the last 15 years. Uh, so he's being assessed on that basis, but also the way that prominent women are often assessed, which is by their clothing and appearance. He's wearing a striking organza dress in pink <laughs> and a diamante collar necklace. And that juxtaposition is, is great and silly. Um, and it moves on to the new cooker sketch that starts with just a misplaced name on a delivery invoice that threatens to leave a housewife who's played by Terry Jones. Uh, without a stove for a few weeks. And then the delivery men, who are Michael Palin and Graham Chapman, start conspiring to help her out in the friendliest way they could possibly do. And it leads to her committing suicide by gas line in hopes of getting faster service and a new stove. Uh, it's just a great example of a working class skewering of bureaucracy. Um, it moves on into the tobacconist sketch that uh, plays with the expectations that covert customers have for covert advertising for sexual services. Uh, it's Eric Idle saying that he'd like a like like some chest of drawers, please, and, <laughs> and uh, a nice bit of pram would be yes, great. Yes, nice bit of pram. Floor, <laughs> uh, and and then it's revealed that the actual advert is it reads. Uh, Blonde prostitute will indulge in any sexual activity for four quid, and he has to ask what it means. <laughs> yeah, the, it's a the progression of it. I think is really fun, and yeah, the, these specific episodes that you sent, uh, they recommended because with sketch shows in general, this is something. This is not a new concept of the Televerse, and anywhere anyone has talked about sketch shows, there's always a hit to miss ratio. There's always um, when you when you accept that form you're going to end up a lot of the times there because they're going to swing for the fences if they're committed. And if they're not, you're probably not watching. Um, and it's not always going to work, but the ones, um, these particular ones I thought were very consistent. I think the, of the, for that episode, like it's such, it may help even just that it's so, sh uh, so efficient, but I did really like the Eric Idol tobacconist. Uh, <laughs> it's very, it's quick little hit. <laughs> Yeah, and it, and it, of course, ending with the Ministry of Silly Walks, you know, John Cleese coming in, that doesn't hurt at the end either. But it's, it's again, it's very, uh, it's very efficient. Uh, I, I did enjoy the opening, uh, the rest of the rest of the, the, the sketches you already referenced as well, as well as uh, 
I'm not big on... Is this the one that has all the animals blowing up? I'm not big on that. Yeah, uh, actually, I can't remember. I don't have that... I, I don't have that lodged in my memory. Um, that's a, they're, they're, they like to blow things up on this they show. They do like to blow things up. There is a cat blowing up early, yeah. on, I think, in the maybe in the cooker sketch. I think a cat. yeah, and that goes with the the psychiatrist, the dairy psychiatrist, uh, as well. No, like there's there's so yeah, much. I mean, I, that's the next episode. That's Deja. that's the next. Okay, I see. I, they have them because I watched a marathon style, so back to back. So right. it's all bl- and it's all blending in my mind. But um, yeah, like you say the. This is a show very interested, and these are comedians very interested in that skewering of bureaucracy and expectation. I mean, you see it constantly in their work, in, in something like the upper class twit sketch, uh, <laughs> which is again another of the all time classics. Uh, you can see it just really. It's hard to think of a sketch that is isn't a straightforward, silly, like fish slappy kind of sketch. It's hard to think of a sketch where they've done that they've done that doesn't have some element of uh, criticism of institutions. Uh, it's a very anarchic show, which is something I always heard about it, but th- which I, I think at various times I had felt like that was uh, maybe a lazy kind of interpretation or just like a, oh, that's such an easy thing to say, but I can't think of a better way to say it. There's a reason everybody calls it that. Cause it really, it very much is that while it's very structured and very formatted and very, very thought out yeah and and not chaotic that's yes that's that's the 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 fulcrum of it is that it looks chaotic it is extremely planned out and it is anarchic in the sense that it overturns institutions yeah and that even includes them and their show uh so when you have i mean i always yes everyone who you know studies comedy at all knows endings are really hard and lots of shows <laughs> like to, you know, SNL has done this and Monty Python does this a bunch and, and plenty of other things where they're like, ah, how are we going to end? Then the person will come in and say, can I get a different ending? And we'll discuss the ending and that's how we'll end it, which happens in uh, the Ellis sketch or the end of the Ellis episode. But um, yeah, the the way that they also deconstruct their own show and criticize at times the, the format of their own show, which is in another of the episodes, maybe this is the second episode where they have the end of sketch police come in. (laughs) Uh, I I enjoy that they are self-aware enough to, to have this larger, uh, you could argue punk sentiment about uh, institutions and bureaucracy, but then to also be self-aware enough to, uh, to, to call themselves out. For the same themselves, yes. Yeah, um, I will say the Ministry of Silly Walks is a, is a classic sketch, and that is part of the reason I picked this episode, Face the Press. But unlike Upper Class Twit of the Year, it is also oddly appreciative of structure, even as it is making fun of organizational systems. It's it's much gentler. It's a gentle look at cabinet ministries. It talks, it examines the absurd, the absurdity of government funded projects. Uh, the Ministry of Silly Walks gets, I can't remember, uh, 348 million billion pounds a year. So <laughs> quite a lot, quite enough. Uh, but it also acknowledges that study pays off in knowledge, however abstruse that knowledge might be, because it has Michael Palin as a civilian coming in to present his idea of a silly walk. And then John Cleese's minister character evaluates it 
really crisply and immediately by saying the right leg isn't silly at all and the left leg merely does a forward aerial half turn every alternate step. You know, it's very clearly defined vocabulary for the work he's doing. He really understands his job, even though his job is extremely silly and futile. And this is something uh, that draws off of things we've talked about, uh, out, things that we've talked about outside of recording. But I appreciate passion and I appreciate uh, consideration. So this is, I, I think the way that that sketch, you know, in, that John Cleese in that sketch breaks down the, the this proposed silly walk is very indicative of their that comedy troupe's approach to comedy uh of and this is something that i appreciate in, in all forms any genre of art or really anything in life to to take something and to understand it completely uh and to you know it's 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 that idea of being very schooled in some area that is your your area of expertise and then uh allowing yourself to move to not then be held back by that so to understand everything you need to know about making a cake and then knowing uh what you need to do what you need to forget and when you need to forget it when you need to throw out the rules in order to create something better um but this notion of throwing everything at the wall which can be exhilarating as well um and just hoping things work that's not what the show is it's so considered every little thing they do whether it's are we gonna blow up a cat or are we gonna blow up a dog which uh, is funnier which is funnier exactly these they've thought about all of this um and it's that care and the craft that goes into that that i think i i key into and that's something that i i would have probably missed had i uh watched this at the wrong time in my development as as a critic and that that idea of throwing the rules out the window is a great jumping off point to start talking about deja vu or show five which mm -hmm. again that's actually show 16 <laughs> uh, because it starts out as a pretty standard episode of Monty Python, insofar as Monty Python can all, can ever be called standard, that it's it's got a silly sketch about uh, about Terry Jones wanting to learn to fly an aeroplane, and uh, Graham Chapman on a string pretending that he can actually fly, and it moves on through another few fairly standard sketches. It's got a hijacked plane, and that calls back to Mister Anemone who can fly. And the sketch about Mr. McTeagle, the Scottish poet. And then everything goes off the goddamn rails. <laughs> and this is where six-year-old me gets really, really terrified. And honestly, I still do sometimes if I watch it late at night. Uh, the, the sketch that's introduced, It's the Mind, with Michael Palin on screen. Uh, it's a weekly magazine of all things psychiatric is what the credit says. And there's eerie music playing in the background and a black and white credit sequence showing brains and microscopes and the caption. And Michael Palin starts to introduce the show within a show. And it's about deja vu, that strange feeling we sometimes get that we've done something before. And then the credits roll again. And then he runs the introduction again. And then the credits roll again and stuttering quite badly. He starts the introduction again and he ends up walking through the landscape of the psychiatry sketch that we've seen previously. And then the credits roll again and it 
ends with Michael Palin in an endless loop telling Dr. Cream, the, the dairy psychiatrist, that he has this terrible feeling of deja vu and it never gets resolved. He's trapped there and so are we. It's a great example. It's a good example of how a fairly standard episode just disintegrates into a dream state and then abandons us there. That oh, I'm going to be such a downer here. That episode didn't. That sketch didn't work as well for me as it as it should have. Um, but I know heresy, heresy to That's all the Monty Python fans. Different people. But I, what I really, because basically I, for me, it took too long to get him out of the studio. Um, but I, I, I understand that that was the point and everything. Uh, so that's one of those just personal taste elements, but what I would like to watch it again, uh, for the thing that I'd like to watch it again to, to really appreciate is Michael Palin's performance. I think is very good in, in that sketch. The, the, and, and I think I wasn't keying into it as much when it first started because I kept waiting for the gag not <laughs> understanding that the, the the point was that there wasn't going to be one and that you were just watching this man's uh, world collapse into a Mobius strip um, and watch watching him have to deal with that so I, I, I would imagine if I went back and watched it again with that knowledge I would be picking up more in his uh, performance at the beginning of the sketch that would help me through the beginning of the sketch because as it as it expands beyond and he moves out into the world and he's just uh sort of terrified and confused and they call back to comedic moments from earlier in the episode that lets you have like a you know a conflicting because he's still completely in his character so while there's this other stuff that we would find funny his character doesn't know about that so his character doesn't react um the the construction of it is something and and the the concept is something that i really respect uh and certainly the performance from palin even if maybe when I, I've only seen it the one time, but it, w watching it uh, earlier today, it didn't hit me as much as I wanted it to. I bet I would like it better upon rewatch. You, it might improve for you upon rewatch. I, initially, I wondered if it affected me only because I came to it so young. I've talked to some other people who saw it for the first time as an adult and have said that it affected them much the same way. But that is probably a question of personality and, and just peculiarity of person and not of age. Um, yeah, I find it a really affecting sequence. I don't find it particularly funny. And that is part of what works for me the most, is that it, it taps into something I find very significant and uh, emotionally revealing, but not especially funny. And I like that they free themselves from the tyranny of the laugh. Yeah. Well, and they that they are able to experiment with the form in that way that they're comfortable with that. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, this is the show that invented and now for something completely different, which is just one of the best things as, as a fan of comedy, uh, and knowing how hard just as a writer, how hard last sentences are. Or, and I can't imagine having to be a comedy writer and, and, if you don't come up with the perfect button, like it's just like the so to have them just be like, eh, fuck it. And now for something completely different, which is a thing. Like if you've watched John Oliver last week tonight, they directly lifted that. Uh, <laughs> and plenty of other uh, comedians have for their projects as well, just because it's such a good idea. Uh, so their comfort to just, again, like I said earlier, to know the rules and know when to adhere to them and know when to twist them and know when to abandon them entirely is, is, 
I think a, a highlight or a key point in the charm of this show. Right. Absolutely. And, and that's a great jumping off point for Michael Ellis because Michael Ellis, the episode, episode 41 completely overturns what we expect from an episode of Monty Python at the very beginning because it starts with the end and the ending credits <laughs> and then the episode starts and i have said this before and i'm sure i'll say it again uh michael ellis isn't a completely successful episode but it did pro probably single-handedly prepare me for watching uh david lynch's mulholland drive because <laughs> it starts with the end it opens it's kind of inexplicable it doesn't really hold together it doesn't really make any damn sense even as a comedy sketch and yet there's something again there's something in there that is not necessarily that funny but it taps into something inside of me i can't really define and i think it works it certainly works that way for a few other people I've talked to. I know it doesn't work for everybody. I'm curious if the episode worked for you, if it, if it just fell flat. Oh, I, I think it's probably the favorite one I watched. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, I'm surprised and delighted to hear that. Yeah. Well, and because, you know, and this is, you know, sketch, I really appreciate sketch comedy. And I think there's a lot of really great sketch comedy out there and, and great sketch series. Uh, but if I had to pick a form, it's not my preferred form because of the hit to miss ratio uh, that so frequently comes up. And, you know, the nice thing about that is that if it doesn't work for you, there's something else coming, but it also doesn't then therefore most of the time, unless you're going to run into an SNL situation where the same characters come back maybe a bit too frequently, uh, you're often not going to get that element of character, which is what I so connect to. So to have this through line of Michael Ellis, it was the, it's the most narrative of the episodes that I saw. So it's not surprising to me that I really keyed into it, even though I wasn't laughing that much. Uh, I wanted to know, like I was, I kept waiting for what's the deal with Michael Ellis. Like, okay, they've got to have some reveal at the end. Like they're going to have the same actor come out and he's got like a twin he didn't know about or something like that. It's going to, they're going to have some tech and then they don't. And that's so much better than if they had, <laughs> it's just like, infinitely better than if they had tied it up in a bow and uh i you know i've really enjoyed going on that journey with the episode and the stuff that they go through along the way is very fun and uh and it's like in the toupee shop small appliances or whatever they're calling it uh that sketch is very silly and it's it's a very much it's the sight gag and just sort of again skewering pomposity and you know a lack of self-knowledge and self-acceptance um there's a lot going, you know, there's a lot going on there, but not necessarily tying in with this larger idea of, or this thread of Michael Ellis. The ant stuff, I'm not laughing <laughs> at, but I, even though I'm enjoying it, I like the little line about, <laughs> I just keep feel, feeding the Jehovah's Witnesses to the uh, tiger. Um, or maybe it was the tiger was scaring off the Jehovah's, Jehovah's Witnesses. Either way, uh, like, so there's some little bits here that I was, I, I, could appreciate on a comedic level but on the whole i was just following the character journey and this that that having that through line which is i believe a rarity for yes. this series uh yes. it really worked for me it's it's rare that they have that strong a through line there certainly are plenty of episodes where they have an idea that recurs throughout various sketches this this with both michael ellis and with the significance of the ants throughout the episode is i think it's a rarity as well um and and it's only just now occurring to me uh, the juxtaposition of the importance of the individual of Michael Ellis 
And the idea, if, I'm going to get really philosophical here. Are the you going Godot? Because I was definitely thinking Godot. Not quite, not quite. But I want to hear, I want to hear about that. Uh, I'm thinking about the specificity of the individual who is being sought on every plane. And then the idea that we're all just ants. We're all, we're all indistinguishable. We're all just running around a maze trying to sort things out and then capping that off with Terry Gilliam as Shelley reading about Ozymandias, King of Ants. Uh, it, 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 it's an idea that hadn't occurred to me, but now it does. And that kind of loops back to, to what I'm saying about, of all things, Mulholland Drive, that, that Michael Ellis has this suffusing sense that everything going on in this in the world of this episode revolves inexplicably around the protagonist and the things he's hearing and his central concern which is getting an ant and it just it's it's fascinating how it both bolsters the sense that the specific individual is important while undermining the sense that we can ever make any coherent story out of life it's this it's this world that is both superficially welcoming and vaguely hostile and i don't know if he's haunted by michael ellis i don't know what's going on in this episode and i love it it really speaks to me yeah it's really um cuz they don't know probably who michael ellis is it doesn't matter who michael ellis is but the the characters within it do so monty python doesn't know who Ellis is, but the guys working the ant counter do. Right. And there's the announcement at the end. At, well, first I want to talk about this. The live tiger on stage, even though he's in a cage and uh -huh. all the flames everywhere, it's yeah. settling. It's very uneasy to watch. And in that scene with the flamethrower and all the flames where Graham Chapman is patting out, he's snuffing out flames on his suit. Uh, while they're sitting there, a voice on the intercom makes a very important announcement about Michael Ellis. It is now the end of Michael Ellis week. From now on, it is Chris Quinn week. And although I don't think he's name checked in the episode, I, I've read books and I've read screenplays or scripts online. And uh, Chris Quinn is identified as the, the Eric Idle character. Ah. Yeah. And I don't know if that's canonical with the Pythons or not. I, uh, I haven't tracked that down, but if it is, it makes it all the more unsettling. Well, it's just, uh, again, there's a specificity to the, to Ellis and to the, the way that that thread goes through the episode that really works for me, um, where it's, it's not just like this one crazy you know, says something about Ellis that leads to all sorts of things. It's, it's a hint at a, like, it's almost like, like this episode is the pilot of a show that sees that idol character discovering, discovering a sub world or like a parallel world living next to ours where there's like all this other crazy stuff going on, you know, like, um, like if Hitchcock, like are you, like anyone who knows Dresden Files, the the book series, for example, where there's secretly fairies and everything mm -hmm. going on in the same, you know, you just stumble down the wrong alley the wrong day and you find that there's this parallel world happening. Like this could this could be that wrong man, uh, North by Northwest kind of confusion 
that takes his character into this whole other bizarre world where there's tables on fire and women walking around in shopping stores and and malls on fire and uh, people, uh, you know, having tigers and sperm whales and all of this stuff. It's just like there's a sense of normalcy despite the ridiculousness of the character to Idol's performance and like the matter of factness with which he goes to buy an ant uh that really sells these ridiculous things that are happening around him uh as well as just letting that Ellis figure it's just like it's just a the confusion with somebody else but he like gets obsessed with it I don't know it just wouldn't right yeah wouldn't it's just it yeah it's hard for me to really put into words exactly what i mean but that is i was intrigued i was i was as intrigued with this episode as idol's character was with just just what who just who is this guy just what is this thing um and that was particularly as a as a through line for an episode to watch them expand and and really play with that idea and keep and to allow themselves to keep coming back to it rather than again rather than adhering to their usual format or structure uh was a particular delight for me i'm so glad to hear that i i know that it's it's uh it's an episode that ha people have divided opinions on this episode and uh and i wasn't sure how you would react to it and honestly i had, i hadn't seen it for a couple of years i wasn't sure how i would react to it again it was really fun and a little disturbing and it doesn't quite land but boy I I enjoy it tremendously because it's an expansion of the story into one coherent universe. And it's also an expansion of what Monty Python does. They they do a lot more than just make preposterous jokes or unseat the supposed dignity of institutional figures. They they really did experiment with surreal storytelling in a long format without ever abandoning the power of silliness and laughter. And I admire that bizarre combination of effects absolutely yeah and, and again <laughs> they got to do whatever they wanted and yeah. for this group of, I, I, before we end here um as i guess this is my last thought sorry i should finish my previous thought before i say my last thought <laughs> uh and i really enjoyed that i'm glad that they had the freedom to do that and that they were self-policing enough to not get swallowed by that um and, and i think that can tie in with my last thought of it's kind of neat to see it because it's something we haven't seen in quite a while, probably for budgetary reasons, but to see a sketch show with this large of a cast, was just not a thing we see anymore. Um, there may be a show like, you know, like Kroll show that has just basically him, but like a, a set number of, of recurring figures, uh, guest stars that like to, that they bring back frequently, or there's key and peel where there's the two of them. And then, anybody they want to bring in or there's Amy Schumer which has just her and whoever she brings that week but to have uh this stable of of comedians that they you know this this group that they you know can really play off of and and you get even just seeing who's going to be in a sketch gives you a sense of what the tone will be or you know you get to see different variations and different combinations so I think that's really interesting uh, one of these days we'll do kids in the hall on here or I'll do kids in the hall on here and um 
get to talk about another show like that. But it, it, I feel like that's a thing we're not seeing in sketch comedy, uh, at least on TV. I haven't seen Birthday Boys. Have you seen Birthday Boys? I have seen Birthday Boys. I, I find it entertaining and amusing. I think they're better writers than they are sketch performers, at least at this point. Some of the writers also write for Comedy Bang Bang, which I review for the AV Club. And I think their writing is great. I think the show maybe it just didn't have time to come into itself. Um, it, it, it isn't, it, it didn't really satisfy me as much mm -hmm. as I hoped. Is that like a larger group or is that just a few people? Boy, it's a big group, but uh -huh. I, I couldn't, I couldn't for the life of me tell you how many, like I okay. can't even estimate it's, it's more than I can count. <laughs> it's more than I can just count off on, you know, on my, on one hand. Fair enough then. So it's very possible that these types of sketches right there, I just, I'm not seeing them. They're just not very high profile. But um, yeah, I think of Garfunkel and Oates, that's two people. I think of Portlandia, that's two people. Uh, to, so it was it was kind of fun to get to see, uh, dive in with the show that I had been meaning to watch for so many years now. I think I can literally say decades at this point. Because <laughs> uh, I certainly became very aware of Monty Python when I was a teenager. Um but never managed to see the the show until now. Uh, it, it, so thank you for, for picking the show and finally getting me off my butt to catch up with some of my classic British comedy. Thank you so much for daring to dive into it with me. One, one of, of the advantages of doing Monty Python is no matter what I say, I'm going to be wrong. So uh, I'm sure I'll hear about this from listeners. Uh, it's impossible to sum up all of Monty Python in a podcast <laughs> and I really look forward to hearing other people's take on it. Absolutely. Well, any final thoughts? I just want to thank you for everything you've done on the Televerse. It's been such a joy to listen to. It's been really great to appear as your guest, but it's been at least as great to listen along. Oh, thank you. It's delightful. I appreciate it. Uh, where can I thank you for coming on and doing so, so much viewing so that you could come on and help me out this week. Uh, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can always find me at the AV club and I'm on Twitter at Emily or else. And thank you once more, Emily. And thank you everyone for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. Mm -hmm.